I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Lurkers, welcome to this week's episode. This week, the episode will probably be a little bit shorter than a typical episode, but it will be new material. So I have mentioned that there has been a family emergency going on. Basically, what has happened is my daughter was in a four-wheeler accident. She suffered a head trauma. Medically, she is good. She does have some work to do in rehab um, for different therapies to get back to where she was. So that's where I've been. That's what has been taking my time going forward. I'm hoping that I will be able to record episodes, get the research done in a timely fashion so that I don't have to keep re-releasing old stuff. And I just want to say thank you for those who have stuck by me and, um, you know, tolerated the re-release of, of episodes you may have already listened to. Um, I apologize for it, but family comes first. So I also want to mention that if you are going to the Bigfoot convention in Virginia, Staunton, Virginia, on June 18th, which is the day after this episode releases on Friday. Liz, our family friend, she's my daughter's best friend. She has the booth called So Sci-Fi and Beyond. And she is going to be raffling off two Bigfoot quilts. One of them is a child size quilt that retails about $225. And the other is a throw sized quilt that retails for about $300. Tickets for the raffle are two for five dollars or five for ten, and all the money raised is going to help with my daughter's expenses. So, if you're at the Bigfoot Festival, stop by, get raffle tickets, say hello. I just wanted to make sure everybody knew what has been going on, what the deal is, and that's the deal. So, there might be some time in the future where I might have to use an old episode again. I'm really hoping not. So I've got a plan in place to try to get things back on track, back where they need to be. And again, thank you to those who have stuck by us through this. You never know when an emergency is going to happen. You always think it's never going to happen to you. So young people, listen up. I realize you don't want your parents to have information But somebody needs to know how to get into the passcode on your phone because it's impossible to do. Somebody needs to have that information. You never know what could happen. So that's my PSA for the day. Now we're going to get on to the episode because you're probably already thinking, shut up and let's go. So this week we're going to learn about the mad gassers. And I'm not talking about my husband because trust me, he could fall into that category. Those of you who have a pretty serious interest in the paranormal or strange things, 
you may already be familiar with the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. That's the name given to the person or persons who went around Mattoon, Illinois, perpetrating gas attacks on unsuspecting citizens in their home. And we are going to talk about Mattoon's Mad Gasser. But what some people don't know is that there were other attacks before Mattoon's that happened in Virginia. And they started in the 30s. So it began at 10 p.m. December 22nd, 1933, in Fincastle, Virginia, which is located off Interstate 81, just north of Roanoke. On this day in 1933, Mrs. Cal Huffman detected a gassy odor in her home and became nauseated. The smell dissipated, and Mrs. Huffman went to bed, leaving her husband awake and hoping to catch the perpetrator. He thought the persons had broken into the home. Thirty minutes later, the smell permeated the house again, and Mr. Huffman called the police. Officer Lemon arrived on scene around midnight, but nothing out of the ordinary was seen. As soon as the officer left around 1 a.m., a third attack happened. This time, all of the family members experienced choking fumes that made them temporarily ill. The Huffman's 20-year-old daughter, Alice, passed out. Alice actually needed artificial respiration in order to resuscitate her. In a few hours, she appeared to completely recover, but later she relapsed and was described as seriously ill. After the third attack, Mr. Huffman and another person inside the home thought they might have seen a man running away. The only clues at the scene were a woman's high-heeled shoe imprint near the window where the gas was believed to have entered the house, and a second print under a porch where it was thought the gasser may have hidden. A local news article read, A mysterious gas attack on the family of a farmer in the Haymaker Town neighborhood late last night was under investigation by Botetot County officers today and tonight, Special Officer O.D. Lemon indicated he had uncovered evidence, which in his opinion may divulge the names of the perpetrators. The gas, which doctors were unable to identify, invaded the home of Cal Huffman three times. Huffman's daughter Alice, about 20, was overcome. By artificial respiration, she was revived and apparently entirely recovered several hours later. The other members of the family, including the parents, were less seriously affected. No motive for the gas attack was apparent, and Huffman said, as far as he knew, he had no enemies. Five days later, on December 27th, there was another gas attack. Mr. and Mrs. Hall of Cloverdale returned home from church around 9 p.m. Within five minutes of returning home, they detected fumes that left a sweet taste in their mouths. Symptoms they suffered included nausea, smarting eyes, and weakness. Basically, their eyes hurt. I just used the word that they used in the newspaper article. A newspaper article stated Mr. Hall, who ventured further into the house to investigate the peculiar odor, was almost overcome and was pushed through an open door to fresh air by Mrs. Hall, who said she was rapidly becoming weak and ill. The next night, on the 28th, a relative of the Halls thought he saw a figure with a flashlight near a side window of the Hall residence. 
there was a second attack on December 27th at the residence of a welder in Troutville named A.L. Kelly. Kelly reported he was attacked in his home around 10 p.m. while he was in an upstairs room. No one else in the Kelly home was affected. News articles stated that the officers investigating were looking for the identity of a man and a woman who passed the Kelly home several times around the time Kelly became violently ill from fumes. The couple was seen driving in a car with the license plate partially concealed. Dr. W.N. Breckenridge of Fincastle and Dr. R.B. Easley, his guest from Richmond, went with a squad of county officers to investigate the Cloverdale complaint. That's the one, uh, the Hall residence. Dr. Breckenridge said it was impossible to distinguish the gas, but that a trace of formaldehyde was discernible, and that he believes the gas was generated from formaldehyde mixed with some other chemicals. The gas tasted sweet. Those made ill complained of extreme nausea, and Mrs. Hall said she had been troubled by smarting of the eyes. Mrs. Hall was at a loss for a motive behind it. The gas entered through a front window. A lock on one of the doors to the house was broken, and the house had been entered, but nothing was taken. The attack seemed to stop until January 11th at 10 p.m., when a Mrs. Moore of Howell's Mill reported hearing muffled voices in the yard following a rustling shade at a window that had been broken for some time. People fix your broken windows. Because the room immediately smelled of gas, Mrs. Moore grabbed her baby and ran out to give the alarm. Despite immediately running outside, Mrs. Moore still had a feeling of numbness in her body. The couple who actually owned the house were completely unaffected. They were actually unaware of the incident until they heard Mrs. Moore yelling. That same night, the home of G.D. Kinsey of Troutville was gassed by what a doctor said was a potentially lethal chlorine gas. On January 16th, Mr. F.B. Duval reported to the police that when he arrived home around 11.30 p.m., he learned his family had been gassed. On his way to meet with police, he saw a glimpse of a man he assumed was the perpetrator running toward a nearby car. On January 19th at 7.30 p.m., Mrs. Campbell was sitting near a window when she noticed the curtains move immediately followed by a strange odor, and then she fell ill. Two nights later, Mr. and Mrs. Howard Crawford returned home around 9 p.m., after visiting with friends. Mrs. Crawford was overcome by fumes while she was lighting a lamp. By January 23rd, the fear of being the mad gasser's next victim reached such hysteria that families living in remote areas of the county were sleeping with neighbors and vigilante farmers were patrolling roads at late hours of the night or sitting on their doorsteps with guns at the ready. Police were concerned an innocent person would be killed because of the nervousness of the people. On January 24th, Mrs. Hartiel of Pleasantdale returned home at 4.30 a.m. after sleeping over at a neighbor's to find her house had been gassed. A man named Reedy immediately detected an odor, and one of his sons grabbed a shotgun, ran outside, and fired at what appeared to be a man running across the field. 
the escalating numbers of people claiming to have been gassed prompted the Virginia State Assembly to pass a bill calling for the maximum prison term of 10 years for anyone convicted of releasing noxious gases in public or private places. My husband better squeeze his cheeks in Virginia. That's all I'm saying. He never listens to this show. He's going to listen to this one because I'm talking about him. But really, he never listens. He'll never know. And for those of you who do know him, don't tell him a word that I've said anything about gassing. Literally get gassed every freaking night. We're getting back to the Virginia law. So in the event that the incident caused injury, the gasser would be deemed guilty of malicious wounding and punished with from between 1 and 20 years in the penitentiary at the discretion of the court. On a Sunday evening on January 28th, five people at the home of Ed Stanley were overcome by noxious fumes. While no one lost consciousness, one woman had to be carried from the house suffering, suffering from extreme nausea. When one of the victims reached fresh air, he saw what appeared to be four men running near the woods. He grabbed a shotgun and fired. The next day, the County Board of Supervisors offered a reward for $500 for the apprehension and conviction of the culprits. $500 in 1933 to 34 would be worth just over $11,000 today. Eventually, because of the lack of credible evidence, the newspapers began to become suspicious. Some citizens expressed the view that the whole thing was a hoax. The last reported gasser case in Botetot County took place at the Troutville home of Mr. A.P. Skaggs. Seven people, along with the family dog, became ill. As usual, the attack happened between 8 and 9 p.m. A doctor was called to treat the family, all of whom recovered completely, including the dog. After that, the gasser seemed to move to nearby Roanoke County. The reports there peaked on the night of February 9th with seven separate reports. This marked a major turning point in the case when the investigating police noted that in no instance did the officers detect any nauseating fumes and no occupants of any of the houses were affected. On the night of February 11th, five more gassings were reported, but police announced a possible break in the case. A bottle had been used to scoop up a sweet-smelling, oily liquid found in the snow near the scene of a suspected attack at the home in Botetot County. The first incident reported there in over a week. A local chemist told police that the mystery liquid was a mixture of substances that were harmless to humans and most likely an insecticide similar to that of fly exterminators used in practically every household. Now, I am going to stop right here and point out that most of those insecticides that were used in the 30s are outlawed today because of the things that happen to people when they use them. So to say that they were harmless, eh, maybe back then in the 1930s. Today, looking back at that, I don't really want to say that that's the case. I would think that they probably have the ability to cause quite a few different side effects. I wish it said which insecticide it was. All reports ceased after the night of February 11th. Roanoke police received 19 calls, the last of which occurred when several officers responded to a gassing that was traced to burning rubber 
prompting them to suggest that the gas man was a product of overactive imaginations. Now we're going to fast forward 11 years and jump more to the middle of the country, to the town of Mattoon, Illinois, where more than two dozen separate cases of gassings were reported to police over the span of two weeks. In most of those cases, people also reported sightings of a suspected assailant who was described as thin and black-clad. Those affected reported symptoms including nausea, vomiting, weakness leading to near paralysis, lightheadedness, and spitting up blood. All the victims reported a sweet, cheap perfume odor prior to the onset of sickness. The first attack occurred on August 31, 1944, at the home of Urban Rafe, who was awakened during the night and early morning hours by a strange odor. Both he and his wife were nauseated and felt weak, and Mr. Rafe was vomiting while Mrs. Rafe was partially paralyzed. The next day, also in the early morning, a young mother living in a neighboring home was also found paralyzed, and her daughter was coughing. The following evening, a Mrs. Bert Carney was awakened by a strong, sweet odor around 11 p.m. As the odor became stronger, she began to lose the feeling in her legs. She called out to her sister, Mrs. Reddy, who was also in the house. Mrs. Reddy determined that the smell was coming from a bedroom window, which was open at the time. The police were contacted, but no evidence of a prowler was found. At around 12.30 a.m., Bert Carney returned home from working as a taxi driver and found a man lurking outside one of the windows. The man then fled, and Mr. Carney later gave a description of the prowler to the media. He said he was tall, thin, dressed in dark clothing, and wore a tight-fitting cap. At the same time, Mrs. Carney reported suffering from a burning sensation on her lips and throat. An investigation showed the prowler's motive was probably robbery. However, local, local papers reported that the incident was the first attack of the mad gasser of Mattoon. A number of attacks were reported in the days that followed, but none of the victims were able to provide a description of the prowler, and no clues were found by police who investigated. On September 5th, Carl and Beulah Cords returned to their home around 10 p.m., where they discovered a piece of white cloth on their porch. Beulah picked up the white cloth and smelled it, and became extremely ill and suffered from a swollen face, a burning sensation in her mouth and throat, and she began to vomit. She also reported feeling weak and experiencing partial paralysis of her legs. Don't sniff random claws that are left on your porch that don't belong to you. Just... That's dumb. Police were called and took the cloth into evidence, as well as an old skeleton key and an empty tube of lipstick that they found on the porch. Police stated that they believed a prowler was probably trying to break into the house. The same night, another incident was reported at the home of Mrs. Leonard Burrell, who said she had seen a stranger break in through her bedroom window and then attempt to gas her. The next day, seven reports were made, one of which saw a prowler they believed to have been the gasser. Many of these people complained of a sickeningly sweet odor that caused them to become sick and slightly paralyzed. On September 7th, Francis Smith and Maxine Smith reported they had seen a blue vapor 
and heard a motorized buzzing sound, believed to be from the gassing machinery. Between September 8th and 13th, seven more reports were made of reported gas attacks. On the last report, Bertha Birch described the gasser as a woman dressed as a man, and a woman's footprints were found at the scene. Concern over the gassing rose, and the local police requested help from the FBI. Armed citizens took to the streets patrolling at night. FBI presence didn't calm the nerves of the locals, and rumors swirled that the attacker was an escapee from the insane asylum, or was a mad scientist testing his equipment. That sounds a little too Saturday morning cartoonish for me, but hey, it was a different time. Maybe mad scientists were more prevalent back then. I will tell you, my grandson said that he was going to be a chemist. And he said he would either be a chemist or a mad scientist. It really just depended on if somebody made him mad or not. I know, kids are crazy. By September 12th, local police had received so many false alarms, they announced that the entire incident was likely the result of explainable occurrences, exacerbated by public fears. After the announcement, the Gasser reports declined, and newspaper accounts began to take on a more skeptical tone. And that was basically the end of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. So who was it, and were the attacks in Virginia connected to the attacks in Illinois? There are multiple similarities, including the accounts of women's shoe prints, the attacks often being made through a window, and the smelling of a strange odor, followed by coughing, nausea, and vomiting. And in both cases, victims made quick recoveries with no lasting symptoms. Most people believe that what happened in Virginia and Illinois were nothing more than mass hysteria. Occurring during World War II, when so many men were off to war and so many women were left alone, the gassings have been explained as nothing more than paranoia, panic, and delirium. Other theories include an ape-man. Really? Big, Bigfoot is uh, running around gassing people now? I mean, I can only imagine what Bigfoot farts would smell like, but gas attacks? I don't know. Others have suggested extraterrestrials using an unknown paralyzing agent. Or could the mad gasser have been a member of our own government who was testing a new military gas to further the war effort? Interestingly, when the attacks received national attention, the authorities began a policy of complete denial, and the attacks ceased. One man believes he knows who was behind the gassings in Illinois. Scott Maruna, high school chemistry and physics teacher, points the finger at a real person who lived in Mattoon and was the town genius, who was always found with his nose buried in a book. Farley Llewellyn drank too much and kept a secret lab where he experimented with chemicals. So the rumor says. Maruna believes that Farley played around with various organic solvents in an attempt to create a weapon. Maruna believes that the gas was tetrachlorothane, which is a chemical that produces all the same symptoms suffered by the attack victims. Farley was placed under police surveillance after the first attack in Mattoon, but the attacks continued, giving the appearance that Farley was innocent. But Maruna believes Farley's two sisters assumed the role of the mad gasser for the final series of attacks in an attempt to clear their brother's name. 
Farley was eventually locked in an asylum, and the attack stopped. So basically, we're never going to know exactly who or what was behind these attacks. But the attacks in Virginia were in 1933, and the attacks in Illinois were 11 years later in 1944. I'm not really sure what my basic opinion is. I don't think it was all mass hysteria. I think some of the reports were fabricated. Some people were freaking out. And so I think there was a chunk that were actually nothing and easily explained. But I do think that there were actual gas attacks that were going on. Some of these people were seeing the windows move, the smell coming in the house. There was evidence of people being outside their house. So I think some of these attacks actually did happen. But why? Why in the world would somebody do that? I don't know. Maybe it was Bigfoot seeking revenge, farting in people's windows. I don't really know. And on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. As always, you can find podcast episodes wherever it is that you listen to your favorite podcasts. And I would hope that Lurk is up there on that list of favorites. You can also find episodes at lurkpodcast.com. And there you will also find links to our social media accounts. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. We have a YouTube channel where we post episodes with a photo slideshow pertaining to the topic of the episode. So subscribe. We also have merch at lurkpodcastmerch.com. Saturday the 18th, I will be at the Bigfoot Convention in Staunton, Virginia at the Holiday Inn Conference Center. If you're in the area, stop by, say hello get a t-shirt, grab some raffle tickets. And until next time, keep lurking.